Hello, this is Peter with Let the Bird Fly. Just a quick note before we get into the show. This episode was recorded shortly before the shutdown in the spring of 2020 for COVID-19. Um, we didn't get it out because things got very hectic and uh, Mike and Wade were producing a lot of content for their classes and Ben and I were very busy with work. So we didn't forget about it, despite what uh, Mike and Wade might tell you. Um, I had it on my list the whole time, but kind of had to put it off to the side. That said, if some of the uh, references seem a little out of place, that is why, if you're listening to this when it first comes out, which will be August of 2020, um, if you're listening to this later in, in the timeline of humanity, then it won't matter at all. But regardless, we hope you enjoy the episode. Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are here in our studio, which is a, uh, a former office, I guess, at the at the college, uh, in the uh, esteemed company of the many memes on the wall and the paintings that Mike's students have done, the, the lovely art. And we are going to be uh, humanities focused today. This is two in a row that have been humanities focused. We just had Dr. Andrew Schmigian, we were talking some Don Quixote, we were talking about, uh, what do you call them, Mariscos? Mm-hmm. Mariscos and stuff like that. And we're going to be getting, staying early modern, well, early modern it'd still be, yeah? Yeah. We're going to be staying early modern, and now we're going to be in, in England, not in Spain. And uh, we're going to talk some John Milton today. Now we have a very, um, a guest we've worked very hard to get huh. on the the podcast, um, and I we've we finally Mike. I don't know how Mike managed it. We've managed to get her to come on and, and talk about uh, something she's done a fair amount of work with, as far as research and and teaching. And uh, let's let her briefly just. Well, you can just tell us your name, and then we'll make the connections. <laughs> yes, Amy Hermanson. And to be clear, y'all asked me once to come on, and then there was a lot of rumor. An insinuation preceding the question. I think we assume that uh, one of our podcast co-hosts, who's not been very active lately. Who's that? Had been working on you. Yeah, do you know a Peter Hermanson? Is there any relation? Oh, he's a nice guy. I've, I nice haven't guy. seen him for a while. He's yeah. a nice guy. No, just kidding. Yeah. yeah. It, um, so Peter is, is not with us. Uh, he and Ben keep doing this job thing. It sounds terribly oppressive. Um, <laughs> they have to work set hours, it seems like. Um that's what he keeps they telling me. They can't just me. take yeah. off to record. It, it <laughs> sounds unpleasant. Um, but Amy is a uh, English professor here at the college, and uh, is has done a lot of work that I think is is very interesting, and we're very excited to talk about it. You haven't, just so we know, you haven't banned Peter from coming on the podcast, have you? Ha! You know, I'll just go on the record again here, in a more public venue. I've actually been encouraging it. I think he's he's so he, he needs a, he needs an outlet. Well, I think it would be good for him. If he's sick of one of the two of us, if that's the reason he's not been on, I mean, who we'll, would you guess it is we'll, out of the... Be we honest. can get rid of Wade. I mean, that's not a problem. <laughs> I don't... 
Honestly, I don't. I think that he is worried that he'll mess up your schedule. Because, you know, the oppressive work thing seems like a reality for him. Uh, we're willing and to be And you all record a bunch during the day, and he's, you We're know. only doing that because we know him and Ben aren't coming. And yeah. We've got some topics, and, and Amy, you heard some of them before, that we really would need Ben for. And then specifically, some of the, like, the government ones would be good to have, have Peter. It's, He'd it's, liven up that discussion, that's it's for becoming, sure. It's becoming less libertarian in this office day by day. Yeah. Well, that's, that'll be the take-home. I thought maybe he was picking it's up a lot of hours. It's becoming less libertarian uh, there. Yeah. He'll show up. Yeah, I thought maybe he was picking up a lot of hours as a Dr. Keene's privatized police force still. <laughs> <laughs> in, in Ravenswood, Wauwatosa. I think Wauwatosa. Carrie is like, is like the, the fire department for, for Peter, and then Peter is... The contract off. Yeah, the, that's all we've uh, got, yeah. But we're here to talk about John Milton, and i just like to say we have a chalkboard with all these ideas, and they... We have ideas that we never cross off. We finally get to cross off. I, Milton's down on the Well, there's some left. that should be crossed off because I, I actually so. wanted, to, wanted to write one on the board today and there was no room. Right. This is one of the rumors that I had heard that I was on the board. Yep. And but. so we get to cross one off or erase it. That's very nice. I also noticed uh, that Mike spelled Abling's wrong. Hmm. How do you spell it? Isn't it E-B-E? I don't know. You wrote it like Ebling's. Is it E-B-E? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. We, sh- we should maybe have them on. So they can that, correct that, that. That's another, uh, that's another elusive um, faculty member that. I'm just going to throw it out there. Have you asked them? I did. I oh, I okay. almost even, I almost even, uh, I said, when would you like to come on? I'm almost tempted just to be like, oh, by the way, you're on Tuesday. What if we could just get, <laughs> what if we could just get in their office and they. We won't come leave. Come back from class and we're sitting there. And we won't leave until you record. And we're set up with the head. I've even teased her. I said on, on our episode that as far as I'm concerned, when we run out of oil, it's not going to be a big deal because Jesus will put oil back in there. Oh, that's a, that's a good tease. And I said, you know, unless, unless we have an environmental scientist that I know that can come on and correct me, I'm going to go with that. Well, and you know what, what I'm afraid of is, uh, is um, Dr. Abling did issues, et cetera. So I'm wondering if it's just we're not big enough for her. That could be. We're oh. beneath her. That could be. And she's too nice to say it. <clears throat> right. That could be. All right. Well, we should we should move on because last time we had a very long intro and I think we wish we'd add more Whose time. Whose fault was that? That was your fault. So I'm going to read the disclaimer <laughs> and then we're going to come back. Well, you always forget what network are we a part of, Mike. We're a part of the 1517 uh, Podcast Network. Please go visit them, 1517.org, I think, right? Yeah. Uh, great publishing We've got some stuff. very good new books coming out, one that I... I think you'll be interested in on apologetics and Paul. Yep. I already got it. I already read it. And then the book on devotion on James. Yep. Have not read that, but got it. Hopefully be talking about those soon. And, uh, our Wells friend, um, Stephen, um, crucial, crucial or crucial, crucial, crucial. You're right. With an R crucial. Um, he is, I just got that in the mail the other day. So so did I. So, and, uh, they sent you copies too. Yeah. Thanks. So, um, uh, Devotional on Jeremiah from fifteen seventeen. I used to get so, the, I used to get the free stuff. Now you're getting they just give it to anybody. Yeah, and I'm happy for that. So uh, lots of podcasts there, um, but make sure you come back to ours. Also, apologetics course in summer twenty twenty. Um, we got two weeks. You can come to either one here at Wisconsin Lutheran College, June fifteenth to nineteenth. Uh, Doctor, the previously mentioned Doctor Kerry uh, Keene and, and myself, practical apologetics class one week, and then bringing in Pastor Luke Thompson from St. Paul's in Ottawa, Ontario, and he's going to talk postmodernism. And so, um, 
anybody interested lady pastor campus pastor teacher i think uh you would uh you would in, enjoy a week with us i think Can so teachers go Yes. All right. So uh, we're going to go do this claimer right now. The show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't you speak for us. You just ran over the ellipses there, by the we way. We will I be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. I'll go live free, friends. And don't let us get in the way. Okay, we're back for our free-for-all, and uh, since we have Amy here, um, we're, our free-for-all is going to be this uh, conundrum, this question, uh, what would you do in this situation? So let's say uh, that uh, you're teaching in a college, and the college says, your department is no longer going to be funded, and uh, but we like you, and we want you to stay on because you're a good teacher, and, so, and we'll even pay for um, you to go get a PhD in this particular uh, subject or department or discipline, but you get to choose. You have to choose one other discipline on a, on a liberal arts campus that you have to go teach now. And you get the right education, that kind of stuff, but you can't teach in your discipline anymore. So theology has been knocked down to nothing. I think I would, I would like to go his, history, but that's not really fair because oh, we kind so of do history. Yep. So... Um, if it was not history, though, um, what would you do? What would be your emphasis in history? What would be your field within the discipline? You know what I would do? I would try to go with um, early American, like Revolution, like Palmer. Or I, I, I think years ago I probably would have said Greco-Roman, but I, I think it would be more interesting. It just just more information, you know, more more political stuff that you can really dig in to in the closer you get um in history you know or is not as far as far back so i think i would do revolution but if i couldn't do history because that's kind of not fair since we are both teaching history classes like history of christianity and luther um i think i do art i always wanted art to do art history hmm. but i have no artistic talent so i know i, I was just gonna so say I'd if have you to do, do art don't I'd, have you to do have art. To... I'd have to do art history you would stay in the humanities then yeah, I can't do, I know, I can't go out, outside of that. It's a bad career choice. Yeah, it is, but I, I'm not about the money. So if you had to do art, which medium would you? Oh, I mean? oil painting. Oh. You knew that right away. I know. I, I very much, I wanted, if I could take one class right now just for fun, it would be art history. Would you want to learn how to paint yourself? I'm, I don't have that talent. But Well, you could develop it. I don't, I don't think so. I think you got it or you don't. Hmm. I mean, I, I would be less, I, I would be, that would be cool to be, be an artist, but I just don't think, I, I think it would be very frustrating for me to do that. So that makes sense. My daughters have some artistic ability. I, I, I mean, I don't, so I'm not really good at most things. So <laughs> <clears throat> I'm done.
Okay. Do you want to go next? Or let... I'll leave it up to our guests. Would you like me to go next, or would you like to go next, Amy? Um, doesn't matter. I mean, I feel like my answer is kind of boring, so I'll go next. All right. And then we can get past it and move on to a more interesting answer. But I, too, would maybe be drawn to history or philosophy. I was interested in philosophy as an undergraduate. But I think, I mean, if they're killing off English, I, they've, they're going to kill off the other humanities too, aren't they? I mean, it, yeah, I think staying in humanities economically is a bad move. Although, that's clearly my how answer we make may well be within the humanities too. Room. Yeah. yeah. So. Do you have a specific field in philosophy you would be interested in? No, you know, I don't. Um, it's I'm far enough away from it that I don't think I could. There's not like some sub-interest that I've kept up mm-hmm. on. I mean, I think ethics is always really interesting, but that too is really broad, as you know. Yeah. I don't know. History, I mean, there too, there's a lot of overlap between English and history, so I'd probably be drawn to early modern British history, which is kind of lame because that's related to what I do now. That's not a bad answer, though. My answers aren't very good either. I would, I would think either... Uh, I would have to say philosophy would be a big draw, but I don't know if that's kind of cheating since I currently teach ethics. Um, but if I did philosophy, I'd, my field, I think, would be, uh, I'd be very interested in, uh, like, uh, ancient Greco-Latin philosophies of life, like Stoicism, Epicureanism. Oh, that's a good one. Stuff like that, yeah. Um, political science, maybe? Yeah, would be an interesting be one. That would be interesting. Um, but I, I think otherwise, if I'm going outside my discipline, and this would be a bad answer because they just closed the department, um, <laughs> which is why Amy's looking for something. Is I, uh, I think I would, uh, I would enjoy uh, doing American lit. Would be an interest, specifically 20th century. Yeah, I, yeah, I was going to ask which period, because yeah, so. It's interesting because American history I'm not really interested in, but American lit I I do dig. So yeah. that w- I would, but that w- once again we're all still see this well, is the problem with the let's humanities. Let's go around then yeah. and say now you got to do STEM. I'll start. Oh I th- boy! I think I would go neuroscience, and I because I, I, that's kind of a new frontier, but it's also that's where you're going to connect most to morality, ethics, the soul, all those kinds of stuff. So you could you could balance that out a little bit. So you you got to choose something from from the other side and it, it can't be PE. I was actually drawn like to that as a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go, I'm going to go with uh, neuroscience. I think maybe psych. Yeah, there you go. Oh, that's a very good answer. <clears throat> yeah. But probably, I mean, some of the same questions sure. I think with, sure. with neuroscience about how, how we, how we are, how we're, how we are. Um, yeah who we are and how we act. Yeah. Uh, you know, Wade, can I answer for you? You can guess. I think I, I could picture you going down some rabbit holes in like chemistry or biology, like in your basement, like cooking something up that you're not supposed to be cooking up. Well, no, no, uh, physics. Because yeah. it's still kind of humanities. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, would, I think I would go with physics. Very good. Those I thought you were imagining him cooking up like a Frankenstein. That's right. Something like that. Or like I was never good at science classes in, like Either where you I. had to do experiments. I always liked the science classes, like the classes, but I always hated the labs. Usually because you had to work with other people, um, which is something I don't particularly usually enjoy. 
Um, but just they're – I just don't think well for labs. Like I'm not detail enough oriented. I'm like, okay, we'll just pour the stuff in. and mm-hmm. I'm not <laughs> like, like you need to measure it or yeah. it blows up. Yeah. Psychophysics. All right. Very good answers. All right. Should we move on? Notice I essentially stayed within the trivium and quadrivium. You did. <laughs> topic before we get to john milton that wade's going to help us uh, get into um we'd like to hear about uh, dr hermanson where'd you go to school do you have children what are they about you don't have to tell us about your children if you don't want that kind of stuff anything you want about you know what's your you know what's your favorite thing to do outside of class i don't know whatever you want to do or where you went to school how you got interested in what yeah. you're doing whatever you want professional stuff's fine too sure i'll i'll keep it short i mean i Grew up here in the Milwaukee area, and I went to Bethany for two years, and then I went to Marquette for two years, and that's probably where, I mean, in high school, I think I got really interested in literature, Um, and then at Marquette, also in philosophy and literature more, and then I went to grad school down in Texas, and eventually wound up here. So where in Texas? Did you already say that? No, Fort Worth, Texas Christian University. Yes. So, uh, Horn Frogs. They be- yeah. They've made some decent runs lately in yeah. sports. So, so uh, Masters from Marquette, correct? No, um, bachelors. So bachelors I just went Marquette. to Bethany two years and then Marquette okay. two years. And then after that, both Masters and Doctorate from TCU, or how did that work? Only Doctorate. Okay, they, you jumped to the Doctorate? Yeah, but You're then it's like to... a longer right. path. Right, gotcha, so gotcha. It's... <clears throat> So you were down, and so your. You know what old, I almost forgot about here, Mike? Your oldest was born in Texas, and doesn't let anybody forget about it. Right, That's she right. may mention that if you've spent time with her for five for minutes. For five minutes, yes. Yeah, I have a very nice so. um, cutout thing of Texas with like a bell on it, whatever else that she gave to me. That's very nice. It's in my office. It's actually That's on prominently nice. displayed. Yeah. Huh. So uh, your dissertation. What was your? What was that all about? Yeah. So I wrote on. Early modern religious culture and reading, history of reading. And so the ways that religious reading shifted as the English Reformation took hold and the ways that it invited readers to really engage religious texts and to engage them differently than they had and to just engage them, period, in ways that they had not been invited to previously. So literature, theology, and some history involved in that. Very interesting. Good. So... Oh, you're gesturing. I'm gesturing for Wade. <laughs> I don't want to feel like make you feel like you're left out. All right. So uh, what I'm excited for us to talk about and something that um, I had assumed we were working on, Amy, about coming on about, but it sounds like it was more implied than a direct ask. Mike, who is the person responsible on the podcast for inviting guests? Uh, I thought it was you. <clears throat> you know it's not me. <laughs> There's no, there has been no delegation of authority. You I took do it, it over. I do it because you won't do it. 
Okay, well, very good. I'll accept that as an answer. Um, but something I think that would be interesting to talk about where there's a crossover, um, because our listeners know we like interdisciplinary topics, and uh, Amy gave her background and her interest, and it's already <clears throat> interdisciplinary, is John Milton, and, a, and especially a, um, a work that he's well-known for. I'm always kind of sad when I ask students now who read this in high school for almost any book, because I just think... Uh, Either I went to a high school that made us read a lot, or there's just less reading of some of the greats in high school. But uh, I'm assuming a fair number of students still had to read part of it in high school. Is that your experience, Amy? No. No. <clears throat> well, yeah. that's sad. So um, uh, so the work is Paradise Lost, and, and some of you may be familiar with it, and I'll let Amy give the background on it. But I thought first maybe we could begin with um, the... Uh, the early modern era, uh, 16th century, is where I, I do most of my work. Is that fair to say where you've done a fair amount to? Yeah, it? yeah. And so Milton's writing after that point, but dealing with the aftermath. Like he's really yeah. categorized not as a restoration writer, even though Paradise Lost was written and published during the restoration, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, so he's going to be elaborating on themes that many of us will be familiar with. Um, <clears throat> especially if we're from a Protestant background that talks about reformations. Um, and so there'll be a lot of themes in Paradise Lost or that Milton engages that are themes that will be familiar with people who um, deal with the reformations. Um, and it's just a super interesting time in England that he's living during. Uh, one of the things that's always fascinating about England to me is on the whole, like, they just tend to, I mean, there's bloodshed at times and there's things that happen, but they just, there's like a elasticity, a flexibility um, to the English that they avoid, like, the extreme of a French Revolution in a lot of ways. Hmm. Yet mm -hmm. they do kill a king, right? Uh-huh, um, yeah. And, and you have some interesting things going on there. And I think it somewhat lent itself to American political life and how, we tried to structure our republic and, and that. Um, but he's a, a man who lived during fascinating times and was himself kind of a a fascinating man. And so I think he's it's just good to consider in and of himself and then also with Paradise Lost. So my thought is, if we can talk a little Milton first, um, if you could, Amy, what's you know hit on whatever you think stands out as especially pertinent for understanding him. You already used one term that our listeners may be somewhat familiar with, but not completely. The restoration, restoration seems to imply there's something that needs to be restored, um, but maybe a little bit about Milton and his background in his times. Yeah, so he's an interesting figure. His biography is really interesting, and all the things that seem relevant are the fact that he is increasingly drawn to Puritan ideas throughout his lifetime, but his grandfather was a Roman Catholic and actually disowned his father for reading a Protestant Bible. So religiously, his family life was mixed and um, huh. high stakes, too. And um, he was liberal arts educated. He had deep, deep training in languages and in classical literature. So when he writes Paradise Lost, he's drawing on all of that wealth of training and knowledge that he has. But then politically, he becomes involved politically, like you were saying, in a really interesting period in English history and he so the English Civil War breaks out and ultimately 
Um, I think it's 1649 is when Charles I is executed, beheaded. And then it's not until 1660 that the monarchy is restored. And Milton was a, he was very active politically and he wrote a lot of pamphlets and a lot of tracts and he works very hard to justify the regicide of Charles I and he's really disappointed when the monarchy is restored. And there are a lot of people who were active in the Commonwealth who weren't necessarily that disappointed when the monarchy was restored because the Commonwealth had its own problems. I mean, there was a lot of instability in the interregnum, the period between Charles I and Charles II. But Milton, maybe just yeah, there, go ahead. briefly, um, first, Mike, please write down as a free-for-all idea, what book would you disown your kid for reading? <laughs> oh, yeah, good <laughs> That'd one. That'd be a really good one. <laughs> Um, secondly, um, in, in Amy or Mike or whoever wants to jump in, we mentioned that, that a king, a monarchy is ended, a king is killed. And in 2020 America, we, we kind of maybe hear that and go, okay, it was a transition point. Um, you know, you have, uh, oh, who's the Duke and Duchess who, um, which one of Diane's boys are, they're oh, starting like the... a company and they... The Megxit. Harry, Harry, and uh, yeah, and uh, and the um, Megan, right? Yeah. Uh, you hear about that, and Americans are like, "Yeah, we send an American over, and we um, we're breaking up the royal family." But um, the idea of a monarchy was more than just that a king is in charge, right? There's religious, political, cultural things all wrapped up in this. Um, some of you from history class may remember talking about the, the divine right of kings. Uh, um, how society is structured is a reflection of religion and politics, right? You know, often mirror each other in these ways. What, um, if you can just unpack a little bit, Amy, and, and go wherever you want, or if it's a bad question, don't. What is um, what does it mean that they've gotten rid of the king, and and why the appeal of the restoration, um, or just if we unpack for people today who might understand how big an issue this was why was this so so critical yeah i mean i guess so since i am more familiar with the 16th century that's kind of where i go as the origins to this moment when a king is killed and the fact that as you were saying so religious religious belief and politics and day-to-day life things like when there will and won't be holidays anymore is all wrapped up in who the monarch is and throughout so once once Henry VIII breaks from the Roman Catholic Church and then has children with a bunch of different wives some of whom he divorces and kills and so on um and so then he has children who have been raised in very different religious traditions and so as they come to the throne and they bring with them very different religious positions but he's made it so that the king or the monarch uh. is determining who and what the religion is i mean they are head of the church in england and that's and so, who they're killing yeah not just the king then exactly right and so and also just the idea that today in england the king and the monarchy the queen today um and the monarchy in general is it's a symbol of power, and I think that in in England you would get a sense today of your your identity as a nation when you look at the monarch. But functionally, that's not who's making yep. the decisions about 
religion or other aspects of your day-to-day life, and that's not actually where your social stability comes from. But at this point in history, that is where your social stability comes from. So when you, when that dissolves and you go to a state of different factions who may or may not have thought that they got along with each other and then find that they may or may not actually agree on as much as they thought vying for power, it it's socially and politically a tinderbox. Yeah, and this idea of, well, parliament can rule. We might look at that as Americans in the 20th or the 21st century and say, well, of course, this is not an experiment that's been had before. Um, the idea of um, even this form of democracy, it's its not democracy, anything like we would imagine today, is a very new thing. So, and, and you got it exactly what I was thinking. You, you've had the religious and political head of the country not just removed, but put to death. Yeah. And, uh, and then Milton will be in support of this. Mike, another free-for-all idea? So Henry VIII, right, different kids, different religions. If you had to raise each of your kids a different religion, oh man, <laughs> what religions would you pick? I, I don't know if I'd do, do different religions, but I always thought it'd be fascinating because, like, it could be denominations. Yeah, there's a cartoon, uh, uh, Phineas and Ferb, <coughs> and one of the boys is British and the other one's not. You know, and oh, for the longest time, the one, longest time I thought like the parents, one was British and one was, and they just had, and then one kid was British and the other one, but it was a mixed family. But that would be awesome. Like I had like one kid who was British and one kid who was like, I don't know, Russian yeah. or whatever. Okay. Put that one down too. I like think that would be, that'd be, that that would be racist rather than, you know, trying to damn um, your children, to damn hell. your children to hell kind of thing. Like it would well, be, no, it would be slightly that free less. Of, we'll assume there's no hell. Yeah. Well, I but I just be slightly less offensive to our, <laughs> to our okay. listeners. <laughs> um, Amy, you got at something in there too. Um, this idea of an interregnum. Uh, what is the interregnum, and, and what's going on there? How is England being ruled? Yeah. So, um, in the English Civil War, the factions broadly defined are the Royalists, so those who would have wanted Charles I to win and those who are in favor of Charles II, his son, coming to the throne. And on the other end, um, or the other side of the battlefield, literally, are the Protestants. Many of them are in, or, or they're represented well in the parliament. So there's a tension between the parliament and the monarch and who holds the purse strings and who's willing to, I, that precipitates um, the war ultimately. But so in the interregnum, there's this group of people who have gained power. Oliver Cromwell was one of the war. And these are the roundheads, right? The I think so. And the See, Cavaliers, I think, are the... The Cavaliers the are the... Yeah. Focused, yeah. Yep. Yeah, no, and so Oliver I think Cromwell... roundheads because of their haircuts, I think it was. That I don't... This is interesting to me. Bold, I can't... Bold cuts, you know. I can't verify, but it's, it sounds interesting. All right, but I'll let you keep going. Sorry, no, so. well, so I was just going to talk a little bit about Oliver Cromwell because he sort of represents some of the problems with the interregnum. He is the figurehead for the interregnum. His son, who I think was named Richard, I think, um, comes to power after him. So Oliver Cromwell dies, and Oliver Cromwell is somewhat successful holding the government together. 
the government could have been king if he wanted to right right that was an option for him but yeah well but then the problem that emerges is that his son is understood to be the apparent heir which looks like a new monarchy basically and so that's part of the problem another part of the problem is that his son is less effective as a leader than his father was and so things you know the the government which is young and ripe and new starts to fall apart under Richard to the point where people who really were invested in the idea of a commonwealth and invested in getting rid of the monarchy do become really glad and happy to invite Charles II back to the throne. And so there's a famous painting by, I can't remember, but it's, you know, it's this huge celebration. You would think that there was maybe some great battle that was won in order to get Charles II reinstated as the monarch. And that is not the case. I mean, they, the painting is like the 17th century version of a ticker tape parade. Everyone is celebrating and just relieved, I think, because there was such instability. I mean, I think in general, I don't know, as the historian, you can correct me if you don't think this holds, but in general, it seems like there is sort of this settling or relief or let's just mellow out and accept some things that we weren't ready to accept after a period of civil war in particular. I mean, you see it, French Revolution and then Napoleon, you see it. Yeah. Even in America, we win, but then there's people who are willing to make Washington king. You know, it's Washington who has to say no, but there's a end of the day, people often learn the hard way stability isn't so bad sometimes. Yeah. And that they're willing to pay a pretty high price for that stability, I think, in terms of giving up some personal freedoms even. Uh Roundheads, just since there's a break right here, uh, roundheads who had short haircuts compared to the long haired wigs. Worn by typically oh. worn by the supporters the like of the, the courtly king. haircut, I think. Yeah. yeah so uh-huh. there's probably a class thing there too underneath some yeah. of that too. Mike, another free for all idea. Amy, you are gold for free for all ideas. Best civil war, like in the history of civil wars. <laughs> I want to say we had the best one, but I don't think we did because it was over. So that's America. That's yeah, ashamed. but it's America, so it's the best. You know, I don't feel like I can take uh, credit for these free for all <laughs> ideas, but I do just want to throw in winging it. That was my idea. Oh, nice. Yeah, I just... I think, yes, Peter did. He's probably taking credit for all kinds of things. It did come I've, through Peter, so... I've been yeah. a supporter in my own way. I just want to go well, on no, the record I appreciate to say that. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. Well, we'll have to mention that. We're, we're doing a wing in it tomorrow with we Dr. Are. Zima. Uh, we will... We will On the Deutsche Messe. We will we'll try to give you remember to give you credit. So <laughs> if... Uh, so we have this time, and I mean, this is just a fascinating period because England is kind of the first one in Europe in this time that's successfully kills a king. They're also, though, going to be bringing the king back. Um, you have, this is a political war, but it's uh, it's divided along religious lines in a lot of ways. Um, and so we're going to talk about Puritans. And I think many of us in America here, Puritans think Thanksgiving or think Salem Witch Trial. Uh, maybe just briefly, and then you can add whatever you want to add, Amy. Um, and Mike, jump in. Puritans were thinking... Those in the in England, um, sometimes or often still practicing within the English Church, even um, heavily influenced by Calvinism. Right? If we think of the Church of England at this time, um, the Anglican Church, which in America is now known as the Episcopal Church, um, it's an amalgam. Right? Elizabeth kind of <clears throat> realizes you can't go too far to any extreme, but it's definitely influenced by Calvin. 
But the Puritans are more orthodox Calvinists, maybe we could say more convinced Calvinists. Um, <clears throat> going to be increasingly viewed as separatists, right? They're kind of trying to move into their own church life, um, which is why Puritans are going to end up in America, kind of through the Netherlands. They're going to come here. Um, <clears throat> does, for Milton, his Purit, or and maybe if this is a, a question you don't want to answer, or I'm asking one that we didn't give you time to think about much, why... What seems to make sense about the more Anglo-Catholic, like high, ch or the more Church of England traditional people supporting a monarchy and the Puritans wanting this change? Yeah, well, I think that's a big part of it for Milton is that he really has, prob in general, so Puritans reject the ways that the Church of England seems to mirror the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church. And part of that is Henry VIII breaks from the Roman Catholic Church, not out of a sense of deep conviction about reforms that he sees as necessary in the church, but for political reasons. He yeah. wants a divorce from his wife. He can't get a divorce because she's the niece of the Pope, and the Pope won't grant it. And so she, he pursues a divorce through religious reform on the continent that he's heard about and then he sort of lets the people under him who see this as an opportunity for real reform or for grabs for power kind of battle it out so it just it creates again this tinderbox for Milton he's allied with people who and he tacks in this increasingly you know Puritan-ish direction throughout his life where he sees grabs for power within the church and within the government as corrupt and opportunistic and tyrannical. And so he just sees, I don't know that he really separates religious life and the hierarchy within the, within the religious realm within the church from political life. I mean, I think he just sees both of them as being these venues where people, where sinful people take control over other people, and that's robbing those individuals of their yeah. liberties, basically. And I think this is helpful to think about because times don't really change. You look at 2020 America, and the same is still true. Um, even if we might think of people as irreligious, being irreligious is still a religion. <clears throat> um, you have the Christian right, the secular left. Um, how one views things religious, how one views human beings, how one views structures and power. I mean, in, in, um, you know, this is something helpful that comes out of uh, post-modernity. We don't swallow it wholesale, but Mike and I have talked about it when we talked about um, Foucault debating uh, Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky. Um, right? There are, you see in narratives... Um, you can look in, well, what power is being exerted? Why is this language used? Who's being mm -hmm, talked about? Mm -hmm. And um, and it makes sense then that one who is suspicious of hierarchy in the church will be suspicious of hierarchy in the political realm. And Protestant churches then often do become, especially in the English and American settings, democratizing or democratic in their view. Mm -hmm. I mean, America and England produce congregationalism. You know, this is just right. a... It comes out of that way of thinking. What, um, if we can maybe get a little bit to Paradise Lost. <laughs> so we've unpacked a little bit of his his background. 
Um, just because I think it's fascinating, as he's writing Paradise Lost, um, please correct me if I'm wrong, he's pretty much out of power. He's persona non grata, um, and he's also blind, Is that, yeah. if that's correct. So he's yeah. just for some dates, born 1608, something like that. Restoration 1660, and he's writing Paradise Lost in the 60s. Yeah, and I don't... Scholars think that he starts writing it before that point, gotcha. but he really dedicates a lot of time to it after the restoration. So in our minds, we should be thinking that Paradise Lost at least is influenced at least some point by this political situation, or at least that's when he's writing it. Definitely, okay. yeah. It, it, it's a, he's writing, my impression at least, is as a man who has seen a lot of what he invested his hopes and efforts into having failed... Um, yeah, and we talked about it a little bit the other day. We didn't record, but we we talked about it. Um, he actually is, I believe, in prison for a while. But whether or not in prison for a while, he's one of the people, especially the new monarchy, is skeptical, very skeptical of for his activities. Yes. So he, he, I don't know if we would say he's a fringe figure, but he's definitely not a power broker or um, an influencer, to use a 2020 word, yeah. as he had been before. Um, he chooses to write Paradise Lost, which is a, a, a religious text. I mean, it's dealing with religious themes. <clears throat> I mean, the main protagonist, I mean, at least one of them is, is Satan. Right. Um, and what he's doing, I think, is innovative. I mean, for his time, this is an epic poem, and I'll, you know, I'll let you unpack that. Why do you think he chooses as his life is winding down, he's now blind, so he's writing through a, what do you call that, amnuensis, amnuensis, uh, yeah, I can't remember his, the word for it, but it's through his daughters and his wife. Yeah, that, and yeah, the way he describes, you know, we just have a few passages where he describes his <coughs> writing style or his process, and it's as though he dreams it, and then he, and it's incredible when you look at his writing to imagine someone who is blind who cannot sit and look at and scratch off and revise in the same way that we could a piece of writing that he accomplishes what he does. I mean, in, in poetic form. Yeah. Especially, I mean, yeah, you would think with prose, okay, maybe why do you think he, he goes then at this point in life to a religious theme for paradise lost and to the, the medium, I guess the form the using writing an epic poem. What, what do you think? lands him there yeah so he's he there are different there's evidence from early in his life that he set out to he thought that he had a calling to be the great english poet and in some ways he accomplishes that i mean he writes what is considered the great english epic and he he does this despite periods of significant doubt in his life so after college he goes and he basically lives in his parents basement I don't know that they had a basement but he goes and he lives with them for six years and just sort of has a studious existence where he reads stuff but doesn't have a job at the point in time where other classmates were he had trained to be a minister but then he doesn't go into the ministry which is probably good because he's like heretic among heretics. He doesn't have consistent religious views, uh, not just with the Church of England, but you can't you can't find a handful of he's people. He's not an Orthodox all, Calvinist even, yeah. Yeah, you can't find a group of people that share his views on everything. He interrogates everything 
very thoroughly himself, but the conclusions that he reaches aren't in line with any single community of Christians. Um, so that was probably a good move not to actually go into the ministry himself, but, um, he writes at different points in his life. I mean, it wasn't a career choice at that point to be a writer, but that's kind of his, what he says is his calling. So the question of why he writes an epic in the end, I mentioned he's really well educated. He's read all of the ancient texts. He's very familiar with Homer and Virgil. He knows Greek he knows Latin, he knows Hebrew, he knows Italian, he knows other languages fluently. And so he knows that in the literary tradition, the culminating accomplishment for an author is to write an epic. And so there are huge structural parallels, really significant structural parallels between what he does in Paradise Lost and what Virgil does in the Aeneid and what Homer does in the Iliad, for example. I, I mean, I think that's yeah. why he makes the choice. Do you think he, he chooses does. religion as a focus partly because Greek and Roman religion is a prevalent factor in Homer and Virgil, or do you think? Yeah, well, I, I think he's writing about something that he sees as so essential himself, but he also, I think he views England as this special cradle for Christianity. And he's not the first person to imagine no. that. I so, mean, Cramer himself thinks right. England's going to unite Protestantism, yeah. Right. No, I, so for a while, he entertained writing this... America would never think that, thankfully. Right. <laughs> Sorry, of course not, right. No city on a hill here. Yeah. Um, yeah, but he he writes, or he imagines himself writing the epic about um, King Arthur for a while, but then he doesn't. So your question about why choose this religious theme, I think is interesting. I mean, I think he's so invested in the questions that he gets to ask through this particular theme. Uh, I mean, he asks some pretty, some pretty deep questions that have a long history. Like he's basically raising the question of the problem of evil. Yeah. And I guess part of the reason it's interesting to me is you look at Homer and you look at Virgil and they're dealing with universal questions in a lot of ways too, but they're they're also dealing with them in a particularly Greek and Roman way, right? Sure, I mean, especially yeah. the Aeneid. Um, Milton's, I guess, it sounds like you're saying, is particularly English in how he gets there and how he views England. But he's his big question is a universal question, right? This problem of, of evil. Do you think he sees religion as allowing him to do that? Or do you think it... Um, or is there something particularly English about why he chooses religion and how he uses religion? Um, I mean, I think both. I mean, I think religion allows him to ask, because the particular moment that he selects, too, he goes back to the origins of the fall into sin. And so he's asking the question um, at the beginning of Paradise Lost. He says, you know, O Muse, help me justify the ways of God to men, yeah. is maybe the line that some people know if they know something mm -hmm. about Milton. But if you think about what that means, the idea that God would need justification is a really audacious claim, but this long history in theology and philosophy of the problem of evil um, is just that. It's this problem that's caused by um, the our inability to really grasp and reconcile the idea that we believe in a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and benevolent. And how do you have a God with those characteristics and then look around and find a world that is filled with suffering 
and sin and how did sin come into the world? If God knew that it was going to come, why wouldn't yeah. he stop it? And if God is good, why would he allow sin to come into the world? And these are the questions. I think that's the central question that he investigates, but he also gets to investigate questions of power, uh, questions of idolatry is really central to his idea of tyranny and is really central to his idea of, I think, I think he thinks that all sin is essentially idolatry. It, um, and I suppose it's a somewhat, I, I like how you put that, a somewhat English way or, or British way of thinking as a, it's kind of like Anselm of Canterbury with faith-seeking understanding, <laughs> right? To look at this and, and try to question, how much do you think that his, him looking at the, the problem of evil um, is him looking back on a life where he sees the monarchy triumphing again and, and um, the, the Church of England kind of maintaining supremacy and... Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some biographers and scholars who think that he is basically writing Paradise Lost as a way to try to sort through, well, how, when I have done the hard thing that I knew was right, when I have fought the good fight politically... And we had what looked like progress. And we had what looked like progress. How could how can I make sense of a world and a cosmos where we wind up back here, huh. where we regress, where we... And so... Which makes sense with like a, a World War One producing existentialism and yeah yeah you know these movements that oftentimes develop after these difficult times in history from to look back what um maybe if you can introduce us a little bit to Milton's explanation then for um, how we get here how uh, what what does he come to an answer on the problem of evil and if so how does he get there yeah I think he does but to I think he does ultimately come to an answer, although there are some scholars who look at the work and say, well, technically he has to come to an answer in order to save his neck because saying that God is not justifiable would be tantamount to suicidal. Yeah, it's different times, yeah. Different times, right. Uh, so is he sincere in coming to that conclusion, I guess, is a point of some debate. Ultimately, he does. I think... Um, before he does, though, what's striking in Paradise Lost is how thoroughly he makes a case against God, <laughs> which, you know, so he opens Paradise Lost by saying, help me justify the ways of God to men and then help me, you know, help me tell the story of how our um, first mother and father, Adam and Eve, fell into sin. And so that's the plot of Paradise Lost. It's based on, you know, what, the first two or three chapters of Genesis and he obviously takes significant creative license and fleshes characters out, um, drawing on many strands of the Christian tradition in order to create these characters that are a composite of just many different ideas throughout the history of... It's not a strictly biblical account. He's going to bring in a lot. Not at all. Yeah. yeah, not at all. Um, but he first blames Satan, which seems like a really safe place to go for the fall. And he, there's blame for Adam and Eve as well. But there's a lot of blame for God. So for Satan, isn't it ultimately God's fault that there was a character who could escape hell? Hell, by the way, is guarded by um, sin is a character and death is a character and there's a whole and some of incestuous the, the relationship. So why would God put them in charge of the keys for hell 
Well, that's how Satan can get out and make it to earth in order to assault. Doesn't Satan have to make an Aeneid-like journey through hell? Yeah, exactly. Just to get out. Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. So he's um, Satan and the Son are the two sort of hero figures that are contrasted with one another in Paradise Lost. And so Satan really follows the model of the ancient hero type, and then the Son is the other hero, but he doesn't follow that pattern. So the son is humble, for example, whereas the ancient, you know, Satan, and then also in the in the Aeneid, I mean, you have the hero who is proud and bold, and that has to be the case in order for the hero to be successful in uh-huh. that context. Um, so he's creating a new hero type. I mean, he's taking the epic form, but then he's kind of revising the character types that we would be familiar with in order to revise the whole form into a Christian form, which is sort of an interesting accomplishment that he... Uh, and the son is who, just to be clear? Yeah, so Christ, but yeah. he refers to him as the son because he has some very unorthodox ideas about uh. about the, the Trinity and the son's relationship to God. I mean, he basically imagines that the son did not know that he was the son and did not know that he would rise when he volunteered and persuaded the father go down to earth and reconcile the concept of justice and mercy by sacrificing himself for humans, which makes the son's sacrifice more noble. Right. Um, but he, de- he definitely, but he's basically fixing ideas. an oversight on the father's part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when he, so he imagines, um, God is really being his indictment of God is so thorough. I mean, Satan, should not have existed um, and should have been locked away if God were really careful about it. Adam and Eve, well, how can Adam and Eve even understand the threat? You know, if you eat of this forbidden tree, you'll die. Um, at one point, Adam says something like, oh, death, whatever death is, you know, like how uh, could Adam even understand the threat? Like I joke with my class when I teach Paradise Lost. I mean, it would be like me looking at one of my kids and telling them, you know, I'm, you're disinherited if you you know, don't stop doing whatever right now. You know, they, yeah, like, they wouldn't, an inheritance. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They wouldn't have any idea. And so, you know, Adam and Eve don't even understand the threat, the other angels in the garden. I mean, they're just, Milton has a great sense of humor in the way that he presents these characters and they're sort of opiish in their innocence almost. But his point is really damning of God because God is making threats that don't make sense. They don't have the information that they would need in order to understand the threats. Um, he's the, the main indictment against God is that he set them up for a fall. Um, the, the defense of God. So God, we don't meet him until book four. So there's been a pretty thorough or no, it's book, it's book three. Um, there's been a pretty thorough indictment of God by that point, but then God, there's like a Congress in heaven And God's deciding because he knows that Satan is going to cause Adam and Eve to fall because he's all knowing. So he knows. And so he's going to, you know, how are we going to handle this once they've fallen? And that's when the son volunteers heroically um, to do this. But that book also provides the father with the opportunity to say, you know, I've created them sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. So free will turns out to be a really big part of the defense of God. Yeah, and which which is why Milton's not a very good Calvinist. Right. Yeah. Right. No, and he's and I, he's not very strong in the Calvinist sense on election either. If I free will and election, I think two areas he. I think so. Yeah. 
that's my sense too and i know i think which usually if you have a high view of free will you're going to be weak on election yeah right yeah no so ultimately i mean he basically says if you what's the difference in heaven between willing service and servitude right it's the question of like one of our kids once asked us you know in heaven are we going to be perfect you know yeah of course you know sunday school answer mike can i play a game real quick yeah which kid do you think asked oh boy are I've we going to be guess. perfect in heaven? Yeah. Allie. Hey, that was my guess, too. It was. Like, to be fair, Gabe can't really talk yet. So True. Right. So you, best of four. Or, Allie asked good questions. She was a good Sunday she, school questioner. She you? does ask good questions. Yeah. No. And at first, I thought I was just validating, like, the easy, hit this one out of the park, mm-hmm. you know. Yes, we will be perfect in heaven. And then she said, so does that mean we'll have to, like, everything we do will always be perfect? And I said, well... Yeah, I mean, I, that's my understanding. And she just said, oh, that sounds terrible, you know, and ah, fail, like totally misread this situation. You know, but her point was, if you're, if you can only be perfect, do you have free will and aren't you just sort of imprisoned and constrained? Yeah. And I... I don't know how to answer that, but that's kind of, I mean, for Milton, part of his justification for God is if God had created us so that we could not fall into sin, he would have to create us without any free will. It's not possible for us to have a truly free will if it were impossible for us to fall into sin. And here I think you can see a political connection as he's arguing against servitude under the monarchy, yeah, right? um, this theme of freedom and what freedom means. And I mean, in, in the Anglo-American sense, liberty is a free will thing, right? It's I'm able to follow and exert my will without coercion. And so, I, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that that would yep. play in. What um, As he kind of wraps up Paradise Lost, so we, we've had God steps in and gives his explanation what is the resolution that Milton reaches? Is it hopeful, not hopeful? Yeah, I mean, I think the other parts of his, um, the other main part of his resolution is um, the idea of Felix Culpa, which is not new to Milton, the idea that the fall into sin actually allows for a deeper love than could be possible without a fall. So the sacrifice of the son, we would never know how deep God's love for us is if he had never had opportunity or cause to send his only son to die for our sins. And so that sacrifice, and then also the, by the end of Paradise Lost, so Adam and Eve fall into sin, which is a whole interesting thing because the question of whether or not they're predisposed to sinning and at what point have they sinned? Does sin exist in the mind or is it only in action? And what is the nature of their sin? It turns out that it's not, you know, hunger or something. It's Uh much deeper. It's rebellion against their own place within a hierarchy. I mean, in the Uh end, Milton sort of says there's, he creates an image of God's creation and a philosophy of God's creation that involves a hierarchy that is ordained by God, which is surprising because he's really rebelling against hierarchies yeah. in this and life Adam and so Eve's much. Fallen is almost heroic in a sense, in that they're yeah, well, and they fall because they, you know, so for Eve, she respects herself too much. She's she's like narcissistic as she comes onto the scene. She 
finds an image of herself when she's looking into a pond and really enjoys that person that she sees and would rather spend time with that person than Adam. And then, you know, God sort of whispers in her ear, this is your mate. This is who you're supposed to be with. And all along the way, I mean, ultimately she falls prey to Satan's temptations because she wants to be out on her own without Adam. And that's when Satan finds her because Adam's not with her. It could be its own episode. It could be its own episode. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then Adam is idolatrous because so idolatry for Milton is when you don't recognize your own place within God's natural order. And Adam's place within the order is that he is supposed to be above Eve, but he loves Eve so much. He loves her too much. And so he lets Eve do things that he shouldn't let her do, which is, you know, again, interesting from our lens today and thinking about Milton's life and he wrote some tracks on divorce for example which are interesting to think about in the context of his the way he portrays the relationship between Adam and Eve but ultimately Adam falls because he allows Eve to go off when he's been told by the angel that God sends you know you're in charge here you're not supposed she's she's lovely and everything but you're actually the one in charge Uh and he still lets her go off and then when she comes back and says you know I did this thing and he decides to fall with her. I mean, there too, he's he's falling. It does because kind of become a love story at that point, yeah. It becomes a love story, he'd but rather it becomes, die with Eve than. Yeah, but he'd rather die with Eve because he has a disproportionate sense of her. Right. He he puts her in a place that she should not be. She becomes an idol for him. Um, so in the end, the two of them, once they have fallen and they blame each other quite a bit. But they too have some moments of, um, of recognizing love and dedication that wouldn't be possible had the fall right. not happened. So the it's idea a little of racy Felix in parts, doesn't Culpa, it? I mean, yeah, sometimes. I mean, yeah, there are there are moments where they go off to their bower. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they ask. Um, there's. You know, Milton is funny, I think. Like if you can if you can slog through the language and become comfortable enough with the language, he's um he has a good sense of humor and he has Adam asking the angel, you know, so do angels have sex? Like what's the deal with that? And yeah. it's at that point, so another famous line from Paradise Lost, no to no no more. You know, so for Milton who knows so much and is so dedicated to learning and knowledge um, it's really interesting because he thinks this is a way that we can become idols ourselves if we try to place ourselves higher than our our lot, our station in life yeah. by learning too much or knowing too much. Um, so knowing to know no more, we shouldn't ask whether or not angels have sex. It uh, there's a lot of interesting dynamics, and there and there's a lot that could be unpacked in other episodes. Um, maybe as a as we kind of wrap up for now, and I think we could come back to some of these themes another day too. So you mentioned having your students read Paradise Lost, and they're reading a uh, Paradise Lost at a Christian liberal arts college. These we use all those terms still. <laughs> uh, the um, what's the value? Um, so even for listeners, in picking up or wrestling with Milton and Paradise Lost. Uh, what what makes it an an enduring book wor- worthy of engagement still today in your view? How do you how do you sell it to students, or yeah. you just assign it and say deal with it? Yeah, no. So my I definitely try to sell it to students because I think that it's better if 
they and we know why there is value in what we're reading. But to me, the biggest appeal, I mean, I obviously find it interesting because I find this period interesting and he's responding to and riffing on a number of things that are happening in this period, as we've already discussed. And I just, I find that really interesting, but also the larger questions that he's taking up this challenge to God. And they've not gone away. Yeah. Yeah. They've not gone away. And for Milton, I mean, Milton writes on intellectual freedom with regard to, you know, government authorities that were trying to stifle it at times, but also religious entities also have an incentive to try and sort of create boundaries for what people should or shouldn't read and therefore think about. And parochialize people. Yeah. Yeah. And he's really opposed to that. It's not surprising. And he lives that out. I mean, he's willing to ask questions that are uncomfortable for a Christian to ask, you know, whether or not God is justifiable and whether or not we can reconcile our, our reality in a sinful world filled with evil. some of those evil. questions that the Psalms themselves even ask, yeah. Right. And he's not interested in trite answers. He's not interested in dismissing the question just because maybe we shouldn't be answering it or it makes some people uncomfortable. And so just the, the integrity with which he asks the hard questions, I think is um, admirable. And then the creativity with which he asks the questions by developing different characters and different parallels between, you know, I mean, the Satan, the character Satan and the father are parallels of one another. Well, what does that mean and how do we make sense of that? And there are other, you know, interesting ways that he really tries to um, engage us. And there, I mean, it's one of the texts that you can just go back to and read again and again and again and continue to find new things. Uh, Well, I think, I mean, it's just so interdisciplinary by nature. It doesn't make sense without understanding the history of his time. He's asking philosophical and theological questions, but with political themes in mind as well. Uh, Mike, you know, you're my trusted go-to about who's in heaven and who's in hell. Um, I've never asked you if I'm going to heaven or hell, by the way, because I'm nervous for your answer. Well, it's still up in at the air. Right. Um, Milton, is he in heaven or hell? I need an answer. You know, these are, I do think about this, like, no one's Solomon. Oh, you think Solomon's not in heaven? I think he is, but, uh, I mean, there's some question there at the end. Yeah. What about Saul? Uh, I like a big heaven. I do, too. Oh, absolutely. I think John Milton's in, in heaven. I mean, I think he gets sin, and then we didn't talk about, you know, his second He believes book. in some weird stuff, though. Well, so do you. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, I, I do. I, I, I had this question was brought up today in, in one of my classes, and specifically about the Athanasian Creed. Like, if you don't believe in baptism, then you're going to hell. And try to explain it's the despising of baptism. But it's more than that. It is, if you get this stuff wrong so badly when you know what is right, that is a red flag that you don't have faith, right? It's not that You're getting serious about the seismic. This is a joke question, but keep going. Right. So I think a guy like Milton who, okay, yeah, is he Orthodox Lutheran? Of course not. Um, Boy, I just, you know, it's it's like the bare minimum faith Uh, that gets in. Another free-for-all. Who's got the best heaven? 
like religious religion or denomination. Yeah, that's a good one. Also, like if you play the, we have a better heaven than the Calvinists, I think. Yeah, because our heaven has beer. Yeah, it's kind of more partyish. <laughs> but also, um, would be fun to play is like you you take um, Pascal's wager to its far extreme. Like, what would what denomination would you be? Like if you hedged all your bets. Well, and I do that with the students. Ans- like, the what religion is- has the worst hell? <laughs> and I would be a Christian because I think Christians have the worst hell, yeah. the scariest one. Yeah. So you could you could play this you could play this out in multiple different ways, but that's for a different time. Okay, those are just ideas you didn't write them down. But well, because she has the sheet for. Okay. Well, Amy, I thank you for coming on. I hope it was a good experience. It'd be very good to have you back again sometime. Um, I we I still would like to do an episode where we get a few of you from the English department in here too, and and talk about some overarching themes. Uh, you know, kind of each each discipline here at the college, each department has its kind of own rationale for what it means to do what we do in the context that we do. And I think it'd be fun to discuss. Yeah, um, definitely. I'm glad to hear that it's an issue Peter has with us. <laughs> um, that's the reason he's he's not coming, and that I hope you'll you'll keep encouraging him that he will he'll come join us because we have a lot of free for all questions. Uh, yeah, that we need a, we need a little. And there's some philosophy I want to do that I just don't think we can do. Yeah. Well, without. Him. I would like to do a wing in it where we just start with like Socrates and just see how far we can get, yeah. like person by person. But that being said, you're you're one of our top gets we've wanted to get, and that yeah. uh. Oh gosh. So it's, this is not Peter's wife. This is Doctor Hermanson. Wow. And uh, and so we appreciate you coming on and, and bringing your wisdom for us. And uh, we'll gladly never have Peter on again if you'll join us more. So, <laughs> would we agree on that, Mike? Oh, absolutely. So, um, right, so thank well. you for coming. It, uh, I, I, maybe, um, as we as we prepare to wrap up, I'll just um, briefly say if if a reader is going to pick up Paradise Lost now and read it, any specific tips you have for how they work their way through? Yeah, I think. <laughs> It's so difficult for us to pick up a text like that and just slog through. And I always have to explain this very carefully to students. Looking at a summary and then looking at the text is probably a good idea. I am not endorsing reading a summary of Paradise Lost in lieu of reading Paradise Lost. Right. But I think if you, if you kind of know what's going on, you're not getting everything from the summary. But then... When you go uh, and look at Paradise Lost, you're not yourself lost. Uh, so this is a dispensation to look at the cliff notes so long as that includes then reading the whole text. Right. That's that's the confusing part for students sometimes. <laughs> well, good. I like that. Mike, I will let you bring us to our conclusion. I'm talking today. We'll never end if I can. That's right. So I think that um, when we look at Paradise Lost, and there are discussions about freedom. There are discussions about free will. There are discussions about evil the discussions about you know how how we live and all those kinds of things i think we as lutherans are very uh, secure in the gospel and knowing that we are so free because we don't have to do anything to please jesus christ that uh, we are free like john milton to write these texts that ask maybe difficult questions we are we are free to even uh you know kind of shake our fist at god and say why and the reason because we should, reason we can do that is because we are secure in Jesus Christ through our baptisms. We don't have to worry about anything. And so as we think about these things and, and discuss John Milton and stuff like that, we know that we're so secure. Uh, Jesus has done everything for us that there's nothing left for us to do but 
Let the Bird Fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get up my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set them up another round. I set them up another round. I set them up another round. One more round won't get me down.